Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 10. We'll study chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. First Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, and here we are picking up where we left off. And for those of you who weren't with us, you may be unfamiliar with the general narrative, but what we've seen thus far is the Lord's sovereign hand upon the history of His people, that He would even make use of the wayward attention span of a handful of donkeys for the sake of calling this random, seemingly young man, Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, to become the king over the people of Israel. Now, the context that the Lord does this is the grumbling of the house of Israel. They've struggled, and they have a good reason to struggle. Uh, Samuel, the judge, a righteous judge, a man who loves the Lord and who lives after him and executes the office of a judge well and uh, in the fear of the Lord, He had two sons, and these sons he established as judges, and they didn't fear the Lord. They didn't walk in the ways of their father. Instead, they became judges for hire. They took bribes. They didn't uphold equity. And so they were men who were motivated by wealth and gain rather than the fear of the Lord. And so the elders of Israel, they come and they complain. And this is a good complaint. I think any of us would feel that way. We'd want to complain about a judge that we can't trust and that doesn't uh, do things justly. Uh, And it's not only that they complain to Samuel, your sons are doing this, but then they make a demand. Give us a king, just like all the other nations. And you see, it's that last part. They have a desire not simply for a king, but a king that will be worldly, that will affirm uh, the worldly kingdom that they are lusting after, Uh, a king that will play to their vanity, a king uh, after their own design rather than the design of God. And so we come, and uh, verse 17 is right on the heels of this section where Samuel has not only met Saul, uh, but told him that he'll be king. He's anointed him, he's kissed him, and he sent him on this tour of Israel. And it's really unique in the things that happen. If you want to look back, you'll you'll get a sense of it where he meets uh, two men that give him an account of the lost donkeys. He meets another three that then give into his hands tribute, a tribute of bread. And then uh, Saul, is uh, he encounters a troop of singing prophets playing instruments and coming down a mountain. And uh, we're told that uh, the, the Lord moved upon him and uh, that he then took up with him and began to prophesy. It must have been something of a sight. One of the points that we made is that the calling of God and the signs that he gives are for the sake of strengthening the person to uphold their calling and obey the Lord. And so as we come to verse 17 through 27, uh, we have... Um, Saul being obedient to the word of Samuel, he comes to uh, Mizpah uh, at the close of that tour, and then we have the gathering of the tribes of Israel for the establishment, or as I have in our bulletin, the installation of uh, Saul as king. And so let's read God's word and we will study it in its parts. 
Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. As we come to these verses of Scripture, let me remind you of the last occasion from the previous verses, and that is Saul's encounter with his uncle. And you may recall that after all of these things that happened to him, these public signs, the anointing, the kissing, the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him, all of these different men and the prophets that he encountered, his own prophesying that whenever he met his uncle, he cowered in front of him. He couldn't tell him about what had happened. He, he refrained to tell him that he was the one anointed as a king, that even when he was pressed and his uncle said, what did uh, Samuel say to you? Uh, oh, he said many things. He told me about the donkeys and that it might be a good idea to get heading home, but he didn't tell him anything about the coming coronation or the command of God or the choice of God or anything that the Lord was doing in his life. And he showed forth a heart that was cowardly, a heart that had more concern for the approval of men than the approval of of the Lord, and it's into that context that we pick up in verse 17. And there are four R's, if I may be uh, permitted, and uh, just uh, cards on the table. One of my professors and mentors, uh, Derek Thomas, is famous for using four R's. My R's are not his R's, but they're still derived from the same text, so they're not far off. So please do forgive me, but these are the slightly and sort of alliterated sermon points. Uh, the first is the rebuke of Israel. In verses 17 through 19, the rebuke of Israel. Verses 20 through 22, the recognition of the king. 
the recognition of the king in verse 25, the reading of the ordinances, the reading of the ordinances, and then in verse 27, the rejection of the king. Uh, the rejection of the king. Rebuke of Israel, recognition of the king, reading of the ordinances, rejection of the king. In verses 17 through 19, we come to this passage, and it's really a momentous occasion. Uh, It's hard uh, to overstate uh, the genesis or the birth of a kingdom, but that's exactly what we have here. It's not the beginning of the people of God that begins with the Lord's covenant promises, but this is the beginning of an earthly kingdom that is formed by the Lord, by His choice, for the sake of His purposes, and specifically under the power and the weight of the teaching of his word. This is significant, and as you might expect, uh, things like this have lots of pomp and circumstance. I don't know if you uh, have ever uh, watched any documentary uh, on the coronation of King Elizabeth or any television show that chronicled it, but it's really a thing to behold. And if you have any sense of the biblical narrative and the establishment of monarchs, whether a king or a queen, and their coronation. Uh, If you were to watch this, you would notice a lot of parallels, the anointing, uh, the reading of the law of God, uh, even sort of other symbolic things. This is done by a bishop or a man of God, and that the, the monarch is under the word of God. And all those things are present. But there's another thing entirely to be noticed about these coronations or installments of monarchies. It's the pomp, it's the circumstance. Uh, Whenever I looked at the way the queen was dressed uh, as she came into Westminster Abbey, it was uh, grand, royal. Uh, She was pristine uh, in her dress. And really nothing has changed. It's all a big symbol. It's a symbol of her authority. It's a symbol of her future rule. It's, It's forward. But it's something that people take note Uh, So much so that uh, these coronations tend in history to change the style, the fashion, of not just one nation, but many nations. Uh, So much so that whenever uh, Queen Victoria was installed, we would call that whole era, whether uh, in England or in the United States, most of the Western world, the Victorian era. Changed the way people dressed, the way people built houses, the way people um, organized Weddings, and it even touched the way that they dealt with funerals. But we don't have any of that here. It's completely different. The first word in this installation of the king is a rebuke. And let me just simply say, if that had happened in those worldly and earthly installations of the monarchies of Europe, people would be aghast if the bishop then read out a list of grievances. But that's what you have here in verses 17 through 19. It's a rebuke, and it's from God against the people of Israel. And if you've been with us, this is a a recitation of facts. This is what the Lord has already said to Samuel, and now it's the occasion for him to press it to all the households of the people of Israel. We're told uh, that Samuel called the people together to the Lord. Okay, so that gives us some sense of where we're going. <laughs> the Lord's the one in the driving seat. He's the one firmly in control. And he said to the people of Israel, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And so Samuel functions as the prophet of God. When you hear somebody says, thus says the Lord, it's time to listen up. It's them saying, this bears the authority of your creator and the God of heaven. Here it comes. And here's what is said. I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Verse 19, the rebuke. But you today have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. That's a heavy rebuke. That's not light. Uh, That's not put in nice terms. That's very direct. The Lord begins with the word, you rejected me. And I'm the God who, let me remind you, saved you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of oppressing kingdoms. When you were a slave in bondage, I was your deliverer, the Lord says. But today you're rejecting me. The God who still saves you and the God who still maintains you and sustains you even in the midst of your calamities. And I love the way that this is said because it's the Lord simply saying, I've not quit to, I've not failed or, or stopped being faithful to you, even though you as a people continue to find the muddy ditches of life within which to get stuck. I've stayed faithful. You've remained wayward. And you're rejecting me. But it's this second part. It's not just the Lord reading the testimony of his faithfulness saying, I've been a good God to you in the past. I continue to be a faithful God to you in the present. But you made a demand of me, the God who is already good to you, who has already set you as a people in a promised land, who has already given you spiritual leaders who deal equitably. You said to me, demanded of me, that I set a king over you. And you see, if you listen to the rebuke, there's there's intentionality. It almost has poetic structure. The thing you begin with, you come back to. They begin with a people in bondage and then they go back to being a people who would desire further bondage. And so if I could outline this for you to let your ears hear the weight of it, it's the Lord saying, you were oppressed and enslaved. I set you free. You rejected the freedom I gave you and you demanded to be oppressed once again as a slave. And that's a heavy weight. And I think if you're looking to establish a kingdom and a king upon a throne, uh, that may be the very last thing that that king-to-be, the monarch ready to be placed upon the throne, wants the people to hear. You rejected God, and so guess what? You get this guy, and this guy's going to do what? He's going to be one of your own people who has a heavy hand upon you, and he's going to enslave you. It's a hard word. A profoundly unpopular word. But let me just say as a preacher, I read this and I think, you know, this is maybe some of the heaviest sermon application that the Bible has to offer. You rejected your God. But it seems to have so much the effect that so many applications from the pulpit have. It hits and it just deflects. 
like a stone skipping off water. But I want you to see this, because in this rebuke, the rebuke of God of his historical faithfulness, his present goodness and covenant keeping, and then their desire to be a people under an earthly king or a worldly kingdom, we see a reflection of our hearts and the reality of who we are. I mean, we are not that different from the ancient Israelites. And you say, hang on a second, my grandparents were not wandering vagabonds that the Lord spoke to audibly and promised a physical land of inheritance. Okay, sure. But how about your heart? How about your soul? Isn't the soul of man wandering in darkness, yet oppressed by the place that it would take itself? Of course. Of course it would. A people oppressed in sin and in the darkness and the night of our fallenness and the depravity of our souls. And we find ourselves on the front end of God's mercy and His kindness and His deliverance crying out as a people enslaved, Oh God, break the chains that bind me. We don't need Egyptians. We have sins that act as wicked monarchs over our souls, whether it is the bondage that anger would cast upon ourselves, the bondage of sexual sin and the lust of the heart, the bondage of any thousand different sins that we would submit ourselves to. And the second piece in the rebuke that shows us so much of the free grace of our God, that God sets the sinner enslaved free. That's the testimony of His faithfulness. Every person that has ever been saved can simply say that whenever the Lord redeemed them, He broke chains. That's the testimony of the famous and wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. I've been set free. It's a lyric that we sing so often. God is a redeemer of his people. But how does the Christian then deal with the freedom that God gives? Well, we sin again, don't we? And it's like we're a people free. We're like slaves that have not just been emancipated, but established and given lands and wealth and rights and citizenship and sonship. We say, you know... God, all this wonderful grace, all this wonderful mercy, all this wonderful heritage, but those chains felt awful nice. I felt secure in those chains. But in the hand of a Lord who loves me and delivered me, I don't know. The rejection of the heart of the Israelites to the freedom that God gives is so analogous to the rejection of the Christian heart whenever they don't love the Lord and enjoy the freedom given by Him. Because ultimately, what's the ark? Well, it's the Christian who regularly feels the weight and the struggle with sin. There's always the simple desire, even within the Christian heart who is redeemed yet in the flesh, to be once again oppressed. That's why John Owen can give the warning, kill sin or sin will kill you. So we should learn a thing from the rebuke that God gives to Israel. If it sent a, a bolt up their spine, it ought to send a bolt up our spines. We ought to check our hearts and check our souls that we don't despise the freedom that God has given. And instead that we would submit to Him and that we would look to Him. And if we would be 
in any way ruled by anyone, that we would bow a knee to his king, King Jesus, the God-man seated upon the throne. Verses 20 through 22, we have the recognition of the king. Remember, I was doing my outline. I wrote myself choice of the king. It just didn't have the same repetition of ours. But we're told that whenever the people are called together, uh, that um, he begins to take lots. Uh, it's this word. It's a single word in Hebrew that's just repeated again and again. And it can mean taken or, or snatched or chosen. And so people sometimes will ask, whenever I was talking to Elise, kind of talking through the sermon with her, she's like, what were they doing choosing lots? Were they just drawing straws? Possibly. <laughs> With one name for each tribe listed on them? Very possibly. Um, but it's hard to say because it's really a, a catch-all word in the Hebrew. So I wish I could paint you a more clear picture of what this all looked like, but suffice it to say that this is symbolic of the choice of God. And this is how the people of Israel often uh, offered up, not to chance, but to divine providence, who it is that the Lord would choose, whether it would be a person to go here or there, maybe a leader, uh, whatever, a hard decision. Uh, this, this casting of lots, or this, as it, as it is here, the taking by lot. Uh, so we read, uh, as it makes good sense, uh, one uh, out of the number of the tribes of Israel was chosen, and it was the tribe of Benjamin. And then another lot was prepared, and then uh, out of that was chosen amongst the clans of Benjamin, the, the various families of Benjamin, and then specifically the household uh, of the Matrites. Uh, and I had to look this one up because I wasn't familiar with the language of the Matrites, but it's just the household of Matri, one of the predecessors, great-great-some-odd-grandfathers of Saul. This clan is chosen, and then specifically out of that family, the brothers and the cousins, uh, the man Saul was chosen. And it presumably rings that any man in that household could have been chosen, so even possibly Kish, who's still alive, hopefully reunited with his donkeys at the point that we read this, uh, he could have been chosen, but Saul's chosen. And so that's how it goes. And the hand of God is extended regarding the choice of the king. And why is this included in the way in which it is? It's because the Lord is choosing the king. It's God's choice. This isn't a, a democratic republic. This is not a democracy. No, no, this is a theocracy. And God is handing, or extending his hand uh, in the midst of the people of Israel, and really that's always the way the Lord intended that if there would be a king over his people, that the Lord would be the one to choose him because he would be the man of God's own choosing. But there's other details, right? So we're told that after they've done all the choices and the lots have been picked or taken, however that unfolded historically, that whenever they fell to Saul, the son of Kish, they sought him out and could not be found. Uh, it's comical if you read it. If you just let the biblical narrative be plain, uh, they look around and it's like, Saul, uh, you're the guy. Your name's on the, the ticket. Where's Saul? Anybody seen Saul? We don't know where Saul is. Everybody's looking around. They're looking up. They're looking down. No one can see Saul. And it gets so bad. He's so well hidden. Uh, that when they can't find him, what we're told in the scripture 
is that the Lord, <laughs> presumably by Samuel, speaks. And he says, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. That's hilarious to me. The man who is to be king is so terrified of God's choice and the call that he's like a little kid. It really just lets you know the, um, the, the state of a man that the Lord is able to, to use. Um, but specifically the state of Saul. And this ought to cast so much light on the coming failures of Saul. Where he's afraid of men. Who's he hiding from? It's a fool's errand to pretend that you can hide from God. You can go to the heights of the mountains or to the depths of the earth. And the psalmist consistently says, you can't hide from God. If I go to the top of the mountain, surely, you, Lord, you are there. And at the depths of the earth, there you are also. So Saul's not hiding from God. Who's he hiding from? Men. He's hiding from the tribes of Israel. Um, he's hiding from his calling. It's open disobedience because he's afraid. And this makes me think of, of stuff that happens in my home. I've got little boys, um, and we have a coat rack in our home. It's a long one these days, and uh, we overload it. If you've been to our house, you might come and say, where do I put my coat? And there's really very little room. Uh, so we have our coats lined out, and I've noticed that whenever uh, sometimes they're either playing hide-and-go-seek or they're in trouble. Benjamin Haddon, where are you? Nowhere to be found, but I see little feet. I see little feet, or maybe even uh, this is like a child hiding in a cupboard. It's the family cupboard, and he doesn't want to be in trouble. She doesn't want to have the wrath uh, of the father. Or maybe they don't want to take the medicine or brush the teeth or go to bed, whatever it is. Hiding in the cupboard. Saul, the king of Israel, is hiding in the baggage. But you see, it seems to me that there's another uh, parallel. It's not just to the children in our households, but it reminds me of Eden, doesn't it, you? That when Adam and Eve were found in sin and they were terrified to face the Lord in His wrath, what did they do? They covered themselves with leaves and they hid in the garden from the Creator and Designer of all things, including the garden and their bodies. He's a man hiding from God's call in silliness. In his weakness and his cowardly heart, he's running from the people and he's running from, he's running from the call of God in the same way that he hid his calling from his uncle. What will they think of me? What will they demand of me? What will I have to do for them? Or maybe at the very bottom of it, a simple, tainted and sinful heart that maybe isn't so concerned about the people but would do anything to be able to run from God and disobey Him. God called him out. As God loves to do. He calls out men who hide in their weaknesses from His calling, who hide in foolish places and under foolish propositions in their own design from the calling that God would have on them. And let me just say to all the men, and also I want to say to all the sisters in the room as well, you're not exempt from the ruling hand of God, is this. It is a fool's errand to disobey the Lord in His calling on our lives. 
And I guarantee you that if there was ever a sort of calling that made me tremble, moving across the world to Germany was one of them. And run from the Lord, but the Lord will have his way. So there's this foreshadowing still yet of of the condition of the heart of an earthly king. The Israelites said, we want a king like all the nations. Well, they got a man of God's choosing, but there was a worldly heart there. And we'll see him disobey the command of God later in his kingship, where he will refuse to execute the directives of God in warfare, where he he will refuse to uh, do extreme acts, yet acts that are in obedience to the Lord. In verse 25, we come to the section where there is the reading of ordinances. The reading of ordinances, chasing after my R, that's as good as I could come up with. Verse 25, Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. Or if you read this, another text, the original Hebrew uh, is more like the kingdom. Um, Say the kingship, I suppose. Uh, The the ways or the... the, um, Ordinances. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Rights and duties, yes. But it's more than that. It's not just what the king has as a right, but these are rules. This is a statute. Uh, it's the same word that you'd use as law. I think you could translate it there, law, if you wanted to. But Samuel stands and he reads, and we're not told in this passage of Scripture exactly uh, what he reads, but we are told that after he uh, tells the people uh, that he then wrote those ordinances, um, he wrote those statutes in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And this has direct relationship uh, to two verses of Scripture. And so if you want to turn back just a few pages, I'll, I'll read to you the first, and I think that both of these are probably uh, part of what was expressed to the people. First Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 18. And this you have uh, Samuel explaining what it's going to be like to have a king. And, uh, and um, you've already had the people shouting and by acclamation, long live the king, long live the king. And well, here Samuel's going to say, well, this is <laughs> what you should get ready for. For Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 18, he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. I think that was read to them. I presume that's the case. It's already been said to them once, but did you hear the great gonging symbol? He will take, he will take, he will take, you will be slaves. That's heavy. 
But really what he's outlining here is the establishment of levied taxation and the right of impressment of soldiers. It's the building of a kingdom. It's, it's really nothing less than that. Um, and so I think this was most likely uh, part of what was read out to them. But in specific, there is something else that I think is directly connected to this, and it derives in the passage where we read that not only did Samuel tell the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, but that he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And this, it ought to make our ears perk up a little bit and think of Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And here the Lord is establishing and, and prophetically in his knowledge of his people, uh, establishing that there may be a king, there probably will be a king, and if there is a king, uh, then he'll have something to say of it. And so, uh, let's read this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Uh, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, and you shall set as and you shall set him as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so, from verse 14 to 17, there are these statutes of how a king will be established and also how he will behave. Verses 18 through 20 speak to how he will reign or how he will rule, and that is that he will reign under the Lord. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. Shall is strong language. He will, he must, he has to. That's the weight of it. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. It's going to get reviewed by his ministers. The pastor is going to come and check his homework. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. I love this. Um, this reminds me of two times in my education. Uh, I think it was whenever I was uh, roughly third or fourth grade uh, in, the, in the U.S. and the system of education where the teachers are teaching you um, specifically how to write sentences and they send you home this homework and it is write this one sentence 15 times. Or if you were particularly bad at school, maybe 50 times, right? And you go home, mom says, you know, what's the homework? Well, i got to write this sentence 50 times. 
because I'm terrible at school, you know? And so you write it. I will not talk back to my teacher. I will arrive on time. I will tie my shoes. I will not poke Johnny who sits next to me in class, whatever it is. Again and again and again. And the repetition has a point. It's to get it in the head, right? And the teacher would hope it gets it in your heart and affects the way you act in class. But this also reminds me of much, a uh, much later class in my education when I began to learn Greek and Hebrew. Um, I was learning another language, and like a small kid, uh, one of the things that professors do, and mine certainly did, was he gave us lines to write and lines from the Bible. Uh, my Hebrew professor said, guess what, guys? You're all going to learn Genesis 1 in Hebrew. <laughs> and uh, my Greek professor said, you're going to learn John 1 and the Lord's Prayer uh, in Greek, you're going to learn it because you're going to write it and you're going to memorize it and you're going to come to me and you're going to verbally give that account. And uh, I won't give it all to you because it would basically be speaking in tongues this evening. But Genesis 1, Bereshith bara Elohim ve'et ha'aretz ve'et ha'shamayim. And it's stuck in my head and I can't forget either the Hebrew or the English behind it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and it's an effect. It gets in the head and in the heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the head and the heart. And that's the whole point of God here. He's going to write this law so that he can't get away from it. Like it's engraved on the backside of his eyelids. Whenever he sleeps, he's going to see it. It's going to be all the way, all the time pressed on him. And that's the point of God. He's saying, you're not your man, you're my man. You're not your man, you're my man. And this is important because, you know, he's not just a man who's accountable to no one but himself. Even within this law, he's accountable to his ministers and also the Lord and certainly to his subjects. He is a man to live under God's word. And, you know, we live in a day and an age where we have very ungodly leaders, people that don't even make pretense about the, the faith uh, that they may have put down on their party card whenever they registered for this, that, or the other worldly party. There's no testimony. There's no evidence. It's just a life lived after the winds of the world, the pressure of other people, or maybe even their wicked desire for gain. Friends, I'm not telling you, uh, we're not theonomists and would press that hard. We don't believe that, you know, the Old Testament law then therefore ought to become the law of the land. However, I want to tell you, we ought to pray for those who are our leaders. We ought to pray that the word of the Lord is for them a thing to be treasured, to be read, and to shape how they act, how they think, and how they conduct the business of the nations in which we live. A standard above the standard of their kingdom. But I also want to say to you, friends, that the place of God's word in the lives of his people is no less than this. No, you're not a king, you're not a queen, I'm not certainly either of those things. But the word of the Lord ought to have first place in our minds and our hearts. If it's good for the king, it's certainly good for his subjects. And let me simply say, our king is the word incarnate. And it wasn't just this law that he knew, but all the law and the prophets and the gospels at his hand had been written into a book 
that he testifies to as the high priest above all. If it's good for our king, it's good for us. Do you know the word of the Lord? Would you submit your life in such a way to the reading of the ordinances of God and of his kingdom? Verse 27. We press on and there's the rejection. Our fourth R of the king. It's so plain. That R was easy. We read that some worthless fellows, in the original language, but some sons of Belial, literally, but some sons of Belial said, how can this man save us? And they despised him. And brought him no present, but he held his uh, peace. Uh, any worldly leader knows what it is to have detractors. Uh, people will judge uh, a leader from 15 different angles. Um, and I just speak ministerially. I've never run for public office. But nonetheless, ministers are usually elected and considered by their congregations. Uh, and if you look over the course of, of great preachers or faithful ministers, if you were to look at their photographs, I dare say they don't get close to Saul. Um, C.H. Spurgeon, a very handsome man of whom I'm told I bear a likeness, did not look like Saul, tall, a head taller than all the people. Um, But had his own detractors who wrote in newspapers slanderous accounts of his ministry and against his faithfulness. Saul experiences this. And it's a hard thing. Any leader that's rejected, uh, it's a hard thing. Um, I mean, he was a good-looking guy. They couldn't even say, look at this guy. He's diminutive. He's just a short dictator. They couldn't say that of him. But nonetheless, they had men that looked at him before he had done anything or really said anything other than hide in the bags. (laughs) They rejected him. I mean, they're not even... They even left the occasion when this all occurs. But it's what they say that reveals so much about the hearts of people in general. They they look at him and they say, how can this man save us? And here's that word, uh, that Old Testament word. It's the one that uh, is the root of what would become the name Yeshua. So the parallel is painfully clear, uh, to me at least. How can this man save us? You see, there are people who know that they have angry enemies that would love to enslave them. They're concerned and they're afraid about those enemies. And they're looking at this man, the man of God's own provision, and they judge him and they simply say, we don't put our faith in him because we also don't put our faith in his God who appointed him. That guy save us. These other kings, they have more. Uh, they have more chariots. They have more horses. They're not just donkey hunters and donkey farmers or whatever Saul was. Uh, they're they're a lot more dangerous than this guy. How can he do anything for us? But there's the same thing that's already been said. It's been said regarding Samuel, and now we'll say it according to Saul, that though they reject the servant of the Lord, they are themselves rejecting the Lord himself. They didn't honor Saul because they didn't honor the Lord. They refused to honor him and submit to him. They didn't bring tribute to him. 
Instead, they opened their mouths and they slandered him. How can this man save us? And we're told at the close, they despised him. But what did he do? In the midst of their unfaithfulness and their hatred, he held his peace. He kept silent. Now friends, if you don't feel the weight of this single verse with the New Testament and the hope of our Lord, then push you to it. What king do you know that was rejected and despised of men? They looked on him and there was nothing of his countenance to be regarded. They despised him and esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. And like a lamb that is led before its shears, he was silent. The rejection of the king, the rejection of Saul, it mirrors the rejection of the heart of God's people, of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. But it ought to, for me and you, give great instruction, even today, because yes, the Lord lived and had a ministry and He died and He was raised and all of this is absolutely and historically true and that people hated Him without cause. But today, people still hate Him without cause and they hate His Word and they hate His rule and they reject Him and His people. And they will look at me and they will look at you just as they looked at Saul and as they looked upon the humanity of Christ and despise Him and persecute us and hate the message of the gospel and refuse his kingdom. And so you can see that even from 1 Samuel chapter 10, the picture of the coming kingdom of Christ was already held out to you. But I want to tell you this one thing is that in the midst of Christ's suffering, in the midst of Saul's suffering, though Christ was silent, he's going to come back and he won't be silent. There is a day coming where Christ will come as King and that those who don't offer to Him tribute, the Word of God says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King. It's coming. And this is reality. And so friends, I want to say to you this evening that even as we study the shadows of the great King, that you and I ought to always be anticipating the coming of our King and the reality that His kingdom will descend and He will rule here over all persons. And His voice will set things right. And there will not be a coward upon the throne in the midst of God's people, but a lion who is also a lamb. May the Lord build us up in faith and help us to press on to anticipate His King, the man of His choice man who has taken his word and graven it upon his heart and on the hearts of his subjects. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, for the ancient account of how you established your people, Lord, that we could see just the outlines of the hope of your kingdom. Father in heaven, we pray that, Lord, you would make us citizens or that wait for and anticipate uh, the return of our Lord. Lord, help us to bend our knee in submission to you, to serve you, oh Lord, to be a people of gladness, Lord, not a, a group who would be called sons of Belial, of wickedness, worthlessness, 
but rather subjects of King Jesus, his bride, his beloved. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.